Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. Welcome, gentlemen. Happy Friday. Happy, happy. happy Friday. Happy Friday. So- feels so strange having coffee and stuff now it's just i don't know what to say about that a straight kalua dude come on yeah it. there's no steam coming off that coffee cup just like johnny carson not not a <laughs> not a stitch of steam anyway welcome, welcome Bilal. yeah welcome Bilal. and Thanks welcome for having me welcome everybody who's joining us uh great friday mm-hmm. afternoon riffs is at uh, noon today uh, just before we get started, let's have our disclaimer, which is that, um, you know, this is not investment advice and you probably shouldn't take investment advice from four dudes on YouTube anyway. So uh, make sure you go- <laughs> this is going to be educational and fun, though, for sure. So I'll turn it over to uh, Richard, you and Bilal get us kicked off. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Mike. So, Bilal, I'm going to ask you the question, the opening question that you pose to every guest, which is to tell us a little bit about your origin story, how you got to where you are, and was it inevitable that you would end up in the investment world? Okay, great. It's great to hear that question inverted back to me. I usually ask that for other people. Um, Well, my origin story is um, I was always uh, interested in economics from a very young age, so in high school. For whatever reason, I loved economics as a subject. I had a really good economics teacher. So I think it was probably more to do with the teacher than anything else. Um, So I ended up uh, going to university to do economics. Um, I enjoyed it. And then while I was at university, the types of jobs that would open up for people with economics backgrounds were management consulting or banking. They were the sort of two big things that people were focusing on. And this was back in the late 1990s. And I ended up getting an internship at JP Morgan. Um, in the investment bank. And I really enjoyed that. Ended up getting a graduate job at JP Morgan. And so that was in 97, 98. And um, 
you know, uh, the, the funny thing was I started as a graduate uh, at JP, had my training program in New York. And during my training program, uh, the Russia crisis kicked off uh, in 1998. There was a Russia crisis back then, which was associated with the LTCM hedge fund, which had these very huge relative value trades. Russia devalued, contrary to people's expectations. It blew up the hedge fund. The Fed, you know, had to try to stabilize the market. So that was my baptism into markets. And I sort of never looked back since. So, so I did research early on at JP Morgan. Foreign exchange research was my main area of focus at the time. Then in 2002, I left uh, JP Morgan to join Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank, in, if, if you recall, in the 2000s, was really building up to become a powerhouse in fixed income. They, they became this huge force, probably the biggest fixed income house in the world, uh, comparable to Goldman's and JP and so on. And so I joined Deutsche in 2002 in London. And initially, I was in foreign exchange research. So the dollar and uh, EM currencies ran that, uh, ran the department. Um, and then after the global financial crisis, um, kind of the whole mood music changed. You know, banking didn't seem so fun anymore. So then I moved to Asia, where there was still a lot of growth happening. And at the time, after the financial crisis, China did really well. And so it seemed like all the opportunities were in Asia. So I moved to Asia uh, to Singapore, where I ran Asia Research for Deutsche Bank uh, in Singapore. And uh, I learned a lot. I spent a lot of time going to China and around the region. Um, and that was a really good, fun experience. But then in the end, I, you know, the fam, my wife, kids, they, uh, they didn't like Singapore so much, um, you know, because all their family and friends and everything were in Europe and London. So we moved back in 2012. So spent, um, you know, a couple of years out there, then moved back to London to head up a cross-market research group because, at the time, in in the sort of the 2010s, multi-asset research, cross-asset research was becoming really big in the asset management industry. It was moving away from 60-40 and risk parity towards multi-asset funds. Um, there were all sorts of different names for it. Gars Fund was was a big one in, in, in the UK, which right. kind of set the tone, and then everybody kind of replicated that. Um, so that became a big theme, you know, having kind of more of a hedge fund type mentality in the uh, institutional investment space. So I did a lot of work in that space. Um, and so I did that up until about 2015. Then I left uh, Deutsche to join Nomura uh, in London, uh, the Japanese investment bank, where I ran research for them um, in, in London, where I did that for about three years. And that was a lot of fun. I, you know, I, I wanted to kind of work at a smaller bank than, say, a Deutsche or a JP, um, just to get a different feel. And it, it, was, it was great. I, I learned a lot, had a great experience there. But then by 2019, I thought I'd done enough working for big banks and big institutions. It's time to do my own thing, to do a startup. And I love research, so I knew it had to be in research. But I wanted the culture of the startup I'd be in to be very open, very networked. And so I launched MacroHive, which is a kind of a platform, a, a hive for uh, research for investors, whether it's retail investors to institutional investors. But the, the key ethos is for it to be very open and networked. So, you know, we have an in-house research team, but then we work a lot with outside researchers, other investors outside. You know, we try to make everything as open and transparent as possible, which is much easier to do outside of a big bank. You know, in big organization, there's so many rules, compliance and so on, where you're afraid to talk to somebody across the across a couple of rows from you because you're you're thinking you're violating some rules. Um, and for me, research is 
you know, the intellectual side of it is, is more to do with conversation with other people. There's only so much you can work out in your own head. But in the end, the best ideas come from interacting with smart people around you from different backgrounds. And that generates the ideas. So so that was really the the, the culture of Macro Hive. And we've been going for about two and a half years. You know, we're growing. We're, we're kind of doing well. And we're, uh, you know, really enjoying the experience. So dig a little deeper into your your process now at Macro Hive. What are you guys uh, focusing on? Is it on a global macro level? Do you, do you focus on any specific equity markets and who your target audience is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so the approach we take is a top-down approach, which means essentially a macro. The starting point would be macro. So we take a view on some of the structural trends in the world. So uh, the structural trends would be things like um, what's the impact of technology on the world, the rise of digitalization, how that's going to impact the service sector. That's, that's one of my pet topics right now. You know, a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, robotics and the manufacturing side. But I think for me, the big story is how is technology going to impact the service sector? So these structural theme, then there's demographics, you know, the aging issues, then there's geopolitics, the rise of China, future of the dollar. So so kind of map out some of these sort of mega trends or structural trends, then take a cyclical view. Where are we in the cycle? You know, uh, you know, we've got inflation right now. How long will it last? How will central banks react to it? Are there some central banks that will be slow, some fast? Um, are we going to have a recession or not? So, so kind of take that view. And then from that basis, then look into whatever our strongest conviction is, then work out which asset class is the best asset class to express the view in. Is it in FX? Is it in bonds? Is it commodities? Is it equities? So we kind of look at all the major markets. If it's relatively liquid market, we've, we focus on any one of those. So in FX, it's all the G10 and liquid EM currencies. Rates, it's all the major rates markets. Equities, it will be all the major uh, index level equities. And then maybe US sectors, but we won't go down to single company level. Um, and then we have another layer below, which is kind of more the trade idea side of things, where we then have built a series of trading models, positioning models, flow models, sentiment models, risk conversion models to help with timing around everything. And the the output for all of this um, goes to we have two audiences, essentially. We have individual investors, so kind of more retail level for that audience. Um, we, we deliver some of that content, some at the highest level to that audience. Um, and it's skewed a bit more towards equities and crypto because that's all retail cares about. They don't care about the finer points of rates or FX. And then we have institutional clients, which are pretty much all the biggest hedge funds in the world, for sure. And then some of the largest asset managers. Uh, and they get everything. They get all the rates views, the curve views, the trading models, the machine learning models, and they get much more sort of intensive sort of coverage from us as well. So we kind of have two audiences and, um, you know, the, each audience has kind of a different level of sophistication and different asset class interest. That's fantastic. How, how did, as you traveled the world, your, your, your background is, is varied in so many ways. And one of them is also very geographically uh, diverse. Yeah. How has that given you um, special insights or has it given you special insights as you've sort of traipsed from continent to continent? Uh, how do people view uh, the research that you do? How did, did you kind of think about that as you built the research department in the different ways that maybe uh, different sectors of investors view things across different continents? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's made a huge, huge difference. I mean, you know, at a very basic level, 
you know, having grown up in, in, in the UK and in the West, you know, it's, it's easy to become a bit arrogant, you know, where you think the West is the most developed part of the world and is where all the action is. But if you spend time in Asia, you kind of get super impressed about how developed Asia is. If you live in Singapore, Hong Kong, Beijing, uh, Shanghai, Tokyo. I mean, these are like, it's like going to Blade Runner or something. It's like the future, you know, skyscrapers, everything works really well. And so suddenly it forces you to kind of think, okay, there are alternative models of economic development, you know, which is quite different. And so it forces you to reevaluate the, the core assumptions you have about the world, which then has an implication then, because if you suddenly think that the, the, the so-called Western way of doing things isn't the only way, then it forces you to appreciate, you know, the world can change. It may not always be the case that the US may be the dominant economic power of Western Europe. Um, but even within Europe, there's differences. Like the difference between the UK, France and Germany is very different, you know, to if you... If you if you're a company in France, if you want to let someone go, fire somebody, it's it's like a two year process. You can't just wow. lay someone off. I mean, that's a whole different. Um, I used to work for Deutsche Bank, and at the board level, they had trade union representatives at the board level. Wow, who would be above the CEO. I mean, it's 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 like you know, just a whole different way of organizing itself. So so you start to appreciate different systems how they can work. Um, and then the other thing you, you appreciate, which really helps in the research approach, is that there's a bias in markets to be very U.S. focused. So what you tend to do is you look at, OK, um, I look back, uh, I'm, you, you say, OK, I, I know my history. So you say you, you look at Volcker, the 70s, the 60s, the post-war period. And so that becomes your only reference point to some extent. But then there's other parts of the world that have had inflation more recently. Brazil's had inflation Japan's had deflation. And so if you suddenly widen out the countries you look at, it allows you to see other parallels to today that are not just in American history. They could be in other countries' histories. Um, and that suddenly, you know, gives you a better sense of where things can go. Um, and perhaps really the, the biggest thing I think has been um, for me is probably the time I spent in Asia, just understanding how the Chinese work and how the Chinese system works. Because to some extent, the story of the last 10 years and the next 10 years is going to be US and China, the two systems. Of, of course, we have the, the Russia, the war, which is terrible right now. But ultimately, the two powerhouses are China and the US, two different systems. They're, they're kind of tied together economically and they're kind of jostling for sort of position in different areas. Um, and other countries are, are kind of trying to align themselves in all of this. And that's the big friction point. Um, and so, you know, having spent time out there, it, it really allows you to kind of understand how the system works there, how people communicate there as well, and how to read kind of the body language as well of officials and, and investors. You, you see, really... Oh, go ahead, Richard. No, yeah, I was just going to say, you raised some really interesting points, and particularly the idea that we in the West have this very US slash Western centric view of the world and, and our understanding of events. And I, I wonder, what are some of the uh, truisms that we are currently uh, holding in, in, in our views in markets and the world, particularly as it pertains to the, 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 the recent set of events, whether it's COVID and, and, and the pandemic at large, and now the war in Russia? What are some of the things that we are holding as absolute truth just ain't so? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I would say there's there's a few things. You know, one is just on COVID specifically, I would say that um, there's obviously there's been this big polarizing debate about how to manage COVID. Um, mm -hmm. But what you see around the world is that 
countries essentially tried lots of different ways to deal with COVID and they've ended up with pretty much the same outcomes. You know, we, we, we did a study based on some new data looking at excess deaths um, around COVID. So not, not looking at deaths that are diagnosed as COVID linked, but just deaths more than normal years. And in essence, you know, Western Europe, every country had something different. US, it's all pretty much in the same ballpark. You know, now some countries like, you know, Sweden was very relaxed. Other countries had much more tighter restrictions, but the COVID outcomes in terms of deaths were pretty much the same. So for all of this kind of fighting we've had about this all, you kind of see the outcomes are pretty much much the same. And that's, you can just see how uh, how how that has happened uh, across different sort of countries. So that, that's kind of one very top, topical moment right, right now. But the other one I think relates to, um, uh, relates uh, in, in terms of recent events to how, uh, um, uh, to do with central bankers, which is that there's been this perception that developed countries have credible institutions like central banks. They're the benchmark, you know, that they, they've got high credibility and then emerging markets are the ones that break the rules and they're more lax. But what we've seen recently is that EM countries have been much more orthodox with monetary policy than developed countries. And so, you know, if you basically looked at the actions of emerging markets over the last like year or two, they basically been hiking rates because of inflation, whereas the developed countries haven't. And now they're catching up. So this idea that somehow, you know, these Western institutions or Fed or the ECB are more credible than, say, the Brazilian central bank or the South African central bank just doesn't 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 hold. You know, um, I think what matters more it's not so much the credibility of the institution. It's more about what has that country, what was the type of crisis each country has experienced recently in the last 10 years. And that gives you a guide to how well they'll cope with the current crisis. So in the, in the Western economies, the crisis they most recently dealt with is a financial crisis. So they don't have experience with inflation, whereas EM countries have dealt with inflation. So they know what, what to do on, 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 um, on that side. Um, so that, that's you know, something about institutions, I think, is, is an important one. Um, and then I think another uh, kind of truism, so to speak, is I mean, this is more of a, a larger point, which is that there's this idea that if you just buy bot, uh, equities, uh, you'll always make money. But if you look at the performance of equity markets around the world, like Italian markets or even Chinese markets, I mean, there's been prolonged periods for the last like 10, 15 years where they basically haven't given you any returns. And so, you know, obviously in the US, we've had this amazing run in the S&P since pretty much the global financial crisis since 09. It's gone up in a straight line. COVID was just a little blip. Um, but that, you know, equities don't always give you those returns. China returns, you know, we've yet to go back to the peak. Um, Italy, Italian markets have been quite weak for a long period of time. You know, Japan's Japan. kind of, yeah. yeah, Japan, we have, we've yet to go back to the 80s or peak. So, so that tells you that, um, you know, equities don't always go up, you know, constantly. And so, you know, you, you kind of need to be aware of that when you have your asset allocation decision, which is kind of long equities, skewed equities, long bonds. And so the debate often is, okay, reduce the bonds and just go long equities. But, you know, if you look outside of the US, the picture for equities hasn't really been as, as rosy as it, as it seems. Uh, so, so that's the other one that you, you really sort of discover when you sort of venture outside of the, outside of the US. I would, I would imagine too, the typical sort of both retail and institutional portfolio has drifted 
a lot more US centric over the last 10 years as well yeah. as you know what's working there's been portfolio drift but even the pressures to be competitive from a return perspective so some return chasing um, some behavioral bias on the recency bias side it's worked so you know more of that puts us tilted largely to US equity markets in many cases for uh, most investors and you know fairly Low exposures to commodities, I would think, across the board. Low exposures to EM uh, equities across the, across the board. It just seems like the perfect setup for a shift to a, a slightly different regime over the next decade that favors different asset classes. What, what are you just seeing to, in that? In that, go ahead. Just, Adam. just yeah, just so I could add to that because I think it sort of dovetails. I was sort of curious. I think you've got an interesting perspective, Bilal, because you have a book of clients who are um, looking to you for guidance. Um, against their current positioning and, and, you know, where they, where they, you think the puck's going. And so I'm just wondering maybe if you can, to Mike's point, sort of give us some guidance on um, where are the clients that you're speaking to, where are their primary concerns relative to existing positioning to the extent that you're able to sort of talk about things generally without obviously of course, yeah. hinting yeah. At, at, at individual clients, but like relative to current positioning, where are clients most concerned at the moment? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, the kind of the top sort of hedge fund, so to speak, I mean, the, the big focus is rates right now. And many of them are underweight bonds or short rates. So they are positioned for higher yields. So that side seems to be working relatively well. Um, the larger debate and question is, why aren't equities weaker? <laughs> so, so equities, you know, obviously, we saw a bit of a correction at the start of the year, but we've had this bounce over the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the thing that's puzzled many, many people. So, so, so I would say <clears throat> that is a big kind of question mark, you know, w- you know what, what happens there. There's also a debate on the dollar. Um, there's a big debate on the dollar around, um, okay, the Fed's hiking rates, so that should be good for the dollar. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, the U.S. also, you know, there's all these debates around the future of the dollar as a reserve currency. So, so people are kind of thinking, okay, maybe the dollar isn't going to be so well supported. So, so there's lots of uncertainty around the dollar, lots of question marks about equities. Um, and then on commodities, I think that most people have uh, come on board with the idea that commodities will go up. And so they are sort of pivoting towards going long commodities. The challenge there is that the volatility in commodities and the pullbacks have been so extreme that from an investor perspective, it's hard to hold those positions um, because if you try to risk manage them with a stop or something, you just get stopped out very quickly. So I think there's a challenge in terms of the volatility there. Bilal, how are you resolving this conundrum with, with your clients in terms of um, action in rates, action in break-evens, inflation prints around the world, and this apparent endless resiliency of equity markets. What are what are some yeah. thoughts that are creeping to the surface there? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say a few things. You know, I mean, the first thing I would say is that um, if you if you leave aside the if you so if you pretended that the Russia-Ukraine war wasn't happening. Um, and just look at, you know, the world right now. Essentially, what you've had is you've had higher inflation prints. Um, but at the same time, you've had restrictions around COVID being lifted around the world. So there's this idea of this kind of reopening kind of trade kind of happening. And you're seeing that in the numbers, the PMI numbers, 
have been very high in the US yesterday, Europe, you know, were, were sort of relatively high. Um, and then to some extent, and then the Fed saying we, we need to, um, you know, hike rates. But what's interesting about the Fed hikes are that the Fed isn't projected to raise uh, rates much higher than where inflation is. So in terms of real interest rates, they're still negative. Um, so what's happened is that there was this uncertainty in the market about how much would the Fed hike. Now, the Fed said we're going to hike a lot. So in a weird way, by giving a path of the Fed hiking, that kind of helps equities to some extent in a weird way, because you kind of know okay, they're going to hike, uh, you know, eight times, say, this year, but they aren't going to hike to 4% or 5%, you know, where we got to before the GFC crisis. So the Fed is basically telling you we're, we're going to do lots of hikes, but we're not going to push real rates, real policy rates above zero, which is a fairly sort of dovish action in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the same time, if you look at equities, earnings numbers have been really strong throughout this whole period. So there's actually been a derating of equities over the last few months. So P ratios have been falling over the last three, four months. And, um, and so in some ways, what you could say is that equities have been resilient, but at the same time, there's been a de-ring. So a lot of the, the bubbly dynamics of very high P ratios have gone. So by equities going sideways while earnings are going up, you know, you could flip it around the other way to say equity should have been much higher. Um, and then, you know, obviously we, we have the Russia-Ukraine thing. But the weird thing about the Russia-Ukraine conflict is that initially there was a risk version event, but very quickly it that risk premium got unwound. So natural gas prices are back to where they were before the Ukraine sort of war. And I think the reason for that is that the transmission mechanism from Russia to the world is not Russian demand, because Russia is a relatively small economy. So it doesn't matter if Russia goes into recession. The transmission is through energy prices. And so far, effectively, the West, or Europe in particular, hasn't sanctioned Russian energy. Um, you know, Russian energy is still flowing to Europe. And so until that happens, you don't really get the big energy shock that could could really destabilize the world. So in, in, a, in, a, in a funny way, you know, while there was a lot of talk about sanctions, Europe didn't go all the way to sanction the most important you know, uh, output from Russia. So that kind of reduces some risk as well. So, so you know, the, the punchline is there's been, you know, derating inequities. Earnings have been strong. There's been reopening. So that means resilience. So stocks have gone, you know, have, you know, have been resilient in that context. So to, to, to linger on this, this notion of the energy shock, uh, the, the news that came out in the last couple of weeks that uh, Western firms like, uh, was it Baker Hughes and Schlumberger and some of these, uh, I think Halliburton as well, leaving Russia. And the information that we hear is that without uh, Western technology, some of the more uh, technically complex oil fields would uh, have to reduce production and eventually stop production. And and those tend to cater uh, to the East, I think, so to China. So they're there's this concern now that China is going to have to pivot towards Saudi Arabia, which it seems to be doing already, and what that entails for the the petrodollar system and all of that. So I wonder if you might speak to a little bit. And 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 first off, if you think that the uh, the importance of Western technology for Russian oil fields has uh, has been accurately depicted or perhaps overstated. Yeah, yeah, no, they're all good questions. I mean, I I would say that there is. Uh, even though the energy exports haven't been sanctioned directly there, there is still a negative impact from all the sanctions, you know, partly through self-sanctioning, you know, ships can't leave, can't 
reach Western ports and so on. I do think the reliance on oil fields, uh, you know, on, on Western technology is overstated. I think Russia, you know, has enough sort of technology there to be able to, to do a lot of that. Plus, they can import it from China in any case as well. So you have to remember with the sanctions regime that, uh, you know, China hasn't imposed sanctions on Russia, neither has India. Most emerging markets hasn't, you know, and so the you know if needed if push comes to shove they could just import it from a third country um so i think that's a bit over overstated um i think where there is some larger risks are if russia holds back its exports of like aluminium neon and some of these commodities to to the world at large and so holds the rest of the world at ransom and you're, you're seeing some rumblings of that already where russia is saying we'll only receive rubles for our oil exports to, to Europe. So it's kind of almost like testing Europe to, or challenging Europe to say, look, you know, uh, you know, will, you know, will you kind of uh, lift some of your sanctions in order to be able to pay us in ruble? So, so there is that. Um, so, so for me, the, the bigger question is more about Russia holding back exports rather than Russia not having equipment to extract minerals or commodities. Um, well, I'll just spend a second maybe describing the story in Neon, because I'm not sure that this is something that the broader market is well aware of. And it's a really interesting piece of the puzzle. Yeah, sure, sure. So so essentially, um, you know, Russia, uh, uh, Russia is, is well known um, for its... Um, uh, you know, for its energy exports, uh, oil and gas. And it's also relatively well known for, um, for its uh, wheat and some agricultural exports. But also it's one of the largest producers of neon, uh, which is an element that's used in uh, things like television tubes and uh, lots of uh, electronic equipment, lasers, for example, as well. Uh, so anything that requires lasers, neons required. And so Russia is one of the, the biggest producers in this area. So if you if you cut the supply of neon to the rest of the world, there's a whole range of electronic products that won't be able to be produced. And so if you recall, for the past two years, we've all been complaining about semiconductor chips and you know cars not being able to be made because of that and so on. So neon would have a similar type of impact. Um, so that's that's quite a big story. Um, now, so far, we don't have much visibility around, you know, future plans for this. At the moment, the exports are still happening. Um, but, you know, this is something that, you know, that that could be quite, quite a big deal. What is your sense of the Fed's ability to manage this current inflation shock? Um, I think that it's really hard for, for, for them to manage this because... Um, well, one, one big reason is a lot of the inflation we're seeing at the moment are coming from the supply side. So whether it's uh, just, you know, very high energy prices or supply chain issues or pandemic related issues around people not working and, and so on. So, you know, they, they can only do so much around that all. But given that, if you do have, uh, you know, less less supply than before, the only way you could really bring inflation down then is you really have to sort of really reduce demand dramatically. So supply has gone down. And so the same level of demand would lead to higher inflation. So you basically have to do a hard landing. You have to kind of really engineer uh, a sharper landing if you really want to bring inflation down. You basically have to tell people, look, just don't drive so much. And the way you do that is you have to really you know, increase interest rates. And so the Fed has started to pivot in that direction. Um, but 
they're still cautious because, as I said earlier, if you look at, you know, they're basically saying they're going to raise uh, policy rates to maybe two or two and a half percent, you know, at that, that sort of the terminal rate. But inflation currently is like 8%, you know, and so in real terms, or, or let's say inflation in the next year is 4% or, or you know, or 3% even, at 2.5%, your, your policy rate is still negative in real terms. Like normally when you go through a tightening cycle, your policy rate should end up being above inflation. And that means your policy is tight and you're, you're going to slow things down. So it seems like the Fed is saying that given the current makeup of inflation, we just need to do kind of enough to do a soft landing and that will be enough to bring inflation down. But if you look at the supply issues in the world, you, you actually need a hard landing in order to bring inflation down. Yeah, but Bilal, shouldn't we be thinking uh, about the inflation issue through the lens of the most recent update to their framework, to the Fed's framework, which is to think about this in terms of rolling windows of inflation. And so there's an average inflation that they're looking at. And, and, to add to that, uh, there's an argument to be made that because this is a supply shock and because there's now this this uh, idea in the zeitgeist, and there's probably some truth to that, that there's deglobalization happening and that the U.S. has realized that they can't afford to have critical supplies uh, be offshore, particularly in countries that might be less than friendly to them. So that in actual fact, you should be looking to keep liquidity around so that capex expenditure could be uh, uh, directed towards the creation of factories to, to, to the building of factories and to, to the creation of the framework to provide that supply and the fact that with a uh, oil shock it's quite likely that we might have a slowdown in the uh, economic activity in, in in the west in general so just yeah, just no, to, yeah just to inject here a little bit because i think one of the wild cards in this cycle that I think is, is maybe underappreciated is the fact that household balance sheets in the U.S. especially, but around the world really, are more flush with cash than at any time since, you know, in the, in the post-war period. And I mean, not just a little bit more, but like off the charts more flush with access to immediate liquidity, which means, to my mind, there's a reasonable chance that the typical models for supply demand curves are going to be pushed substantially more to the right than maybe most economists are expecting. So in other words, we may need much higher prices in terms of, you know, supply shocks and prices of inputs in order to facilitate or catalyze a material slowdown in demand just because, uh, you know, households have a lot greater capacity at the moment to endure higher prices for longer. And so I wonder the degree to which that may provide an extra uh, set of complications to central bank policymaking here. Yeah, no, I mean, those are all really, really good points. And and kind of at the heart of all of this is how do you deal with supply, you know, uh, a supply shock, you know, is, and in some ways the answer is, it's it's hard for the central bank to be the only actor to deal with this all. In reality, what you need is you need uh, uh, a supply side response from the government uh, in some ways. So, for example, you basically need um, a change in your trade policy to allow you to, 
you know, make sure that you're only trading with countries who you have strong relationships with. That's not under the remit of the Fed. That's a trade policy dynamic. You need incentives to onshore manufacturing, you know, to make sure that you, you know, have more manufacturing resilience. Again, that's to do with, uh, you know, you know, issues around uh, regulation, for example. So at the moment, one of the reasons companies offshore a lot is partly it's cost, but also it's regulatory arbitrage. Because to open a factory, if you have huge amounts of regulation to do that, it's just too difficult to do that. So you basically do the regulatory arbitrage and have it in a country that doesn't have such high regulatory standards. And, and you know, so so there needs to be kind of a view on that as well. Um, and then in terms of uh, energy transition, for example, as, as a policy, again, it's hard for the private sector to do it itself. It has to be sort of government led. So so in reality, what you need is you need a wholesale you know, governmental response to a supply chain issue. And then you need to have uh, an accord with your allies so like right now, Europe and the US, you know, because of the Russia thing, they've got an agreement now that LNG from US will go to Europe. You, you kind of need an accord like that. So in reality, you need all of that to make all of this work. Just for the central bank to do this is, you're re- you, you know, the central bank's using a really crude, you know, device to kind of deal with, with all of this. Um, on some of the specific points that you, you, you mentioned, um, on the household savings, uh, it is definitely true. There's uh, the balance sheet is a lot healthier than before. Um, the the issue, though, from a, a growth perspective, is that if you think about savings rates in the US, they're now back to, if not below, pre-pandemic levels. Yep. And so that tells you that you know people have, you know, like they're they're not saving much. On top of that, their real earnings are falling um, as well, so they don't have as much purchasing power as before. And whether they can dip into their savings, you know, their, their stock of cash to, to spend, it's really, really unusual for the saving rate to go negative. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't really kind of happen. So I think that there is an issue in, in the US and in other countries where the labor market at one level looks very strong. But when you scratch away the surface, the labor market is much, much weaker than it looks. And I think that the pandemic has distorted the strength of the labor market because there's a lot of people just who haven't been willing to work or because of restrictions they haven't gone out or because of schools they've been forced to stay at home. But when you remove all of that, which is happening now, you'll suddenly realize actually the labor market is is a lot weaker than it, it, it first uh, appears. And one way of measuring this all is that, number one, if you have a very strong labor market, real wages should be going up, not down. You know, So basically, workers should have more power than the companies. So they should say to the companies, your prices are going up, so my wages should go up even more. But that's not happening. Another measure is if you look at the employment ratio of working age population. Um, today, um, the overall number of working age men and women isn't back to where it was before the pandemic. Um, so there's still this latent supply of, of people. Um, and then if you look at hours worked, you know, overall hours worked uh, are still below trend. You know, so people aren't getting the hours that they need to work. Um, you know, so one, one measure for strong overheating market is people can get the hours, you know? So like if you're a worker, not everyone has a nine to five full-time job. A lot of people have like hourly jobs where you, you basically want desperately want to get to 40 hours and instead you only get 30 hours. So you, you're not, not, not seeing that. So there is this kind of labor market uh, weak, weakness, I think that's been underappreciated. So, so I do think that even though household balance sheets are relatively strong, there is some weakness there. Then also, if you look at the distribution of household savings is skewed to to the richer end of of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say the Fed, the Fed finds itself in the, you know with their new sort of equality mandate 
across uh, their their monetary policy. That's another issue, right? Because the savings yeah, rate's high yeah. for a certain group of people. It's not high for another group. So how are you going to do that? Are you going to do more subsidies for lower and middle class? Yeah, how are you yeah. going to get money to that group while you raise rates on the other group that has the percent, the savings? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the paradoxes, paradoxes of the pandemic, which is that the sectors that got hit the most were the manual sectors, sectors where people have to face other people, people have to touch things. Whereas uh, the upper middle class, you know, are people who work behind screens. They don't physically yeah. have to interact with people. So that, that those sectors have done well because they were able to go remote and they have, you know, broadband connections. Whereas people who, you know, work in transport, work in retail, you know, the, the more sort of precarious sort of professions have, have been the ones that have been hit the hardest. I want to stay with the inflation discussion and the ability and tools at the Fed's disposal to, to manage some of this. And I think, um, I mean, you raised some really good points in that the Fed's tools are blunt and they are most effective in coordination with a variety of other actors who are um, all pulling in the same direction. The challenge, I think, at the moment especially, is that the regulatory and trade type of policies that might be enacted here and incentives that might be enacted, these are intermediate to long-term solutions. And I think the fear here, and just to invoke uh, a framework that I've heard Mohammed El Arian articulate, you've got this idea that inflation starts in a very narrow sector of the economy, right? He, he sort of talks about lumber as being sort of the, the original start of where inflation um, began to enter the public consciousness back in sort of late 2020, early 2021. It's obvious, obviously spread into the energy sector most acutely, but you're obviously seeing it in a wide variety of sectors. And that once this sort of, so you got stage one where it's very narrow, begins to catch attention. Stage two is adaptive expectations. Individuals and companies begin to raise prices, both because their input costs are increasing and they're trying to maintain margins. And because the consumer is acknowledging that there's inflation and they're willing to spend more to get the same goods. The Fed doesn't really have any ability to moderate those stages of the inflation process. But the third stage is the most insidious. And that is where um, citizens, consumers begin to anticipate a sustained inflation cycle and build that into longer term expectations. And I think this is the role where the Fed can step in and have a very large impact. Because this ends up being a signaling uh, question, right? How do you signal to citizens and consumers that there the Fed and policymakers will not tolerate a sustained inflationary impulse that devalues the dollar and all of, and all of the dollar-based liabilities that exist around the world? And so I think we're, we're well into sort of stage two here. And the question is, is the Fed going to take the action necessary to short circuit this longer term inflation expectations spiral? And so do you think the actions and the statements that, that the Fed has made so far are sufficient to short circuit that? Or do you think that they're going to have to do more? And do you think that maybe 
that's what we're seeing being repriced in the bond market. And it just hasn't had a chance to propagate to other asset markets. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I think that in terms of the Fed, I mean, I think that they've, they've swung from being behind the curve to being with the curve. And I think they probably need to do a bit more to get ahead of the curve to really bring down those expectations. So, for example, you know, this year the market is pricing, you know, another maybe 200 basis points of rate hikes. Next year, maybe two hikes. So the next year one seems a bit too low, you know, so perhaps it should be four hikes for next year. Um, so maybe the, you know, the Fed policy rate should get to like 3% or something like that. Um, so I think the Fed kind of needs to move up in, in that direction. And I think the Fed's done a quite a bad job in its communication. And, you know, it, it, it always seems to be kind of catching up to, to something. So we had the Fed meeting a week or so ago. Then Powell had to come out with a speech uh, at the beginning of this week to clarify that they are hawkish. And that's what's caused the latest move up in yield. So it, it tells you that the Fed is struggling to articulate its policy that well. So I think they're moving in the right direction to uh, deal with it in this paradigm and they could do a bit more. Now, on the question of the spiraling expectations, I know, you know, Al-Aryan and many others, Summers have talked about this. I personally am a bit skeptical of the, the whole wage uh, price expectation spiral sort of dynamic, um, partly because if you look at, uh, you know, forward-looking uh, inflation expectations, they're, they're all relatively stable. You know, um, most surveys basically tell you near-term inflation uh, and then long-term, it's going to be fairly well anchored. Um, secondly, um, so throughout this whole experience, you haven't seen this sort of de-anchoring. Um, but secondly, if you, if you look at the relationships between expectations, consumer surveys, even if you go back to the 70s even, what you find is that um, it lags actual inflation. You know, so it never leads inflation. It's mm -hmm. always like if inflation is 8% today, then inflation expectations pick up. You know, uh, if it goes down 6%, it will then also go down. So it just follows spot. And it's a bit more skewed towards salient uh, prices like food and energy, things you, you interact with every day. And so those prices move, move around a lot. So I, I'm kind of skeptical about that spiral. Um, and if you really did see that, I think you, you'd also see um, wage, uh, real wages go up much more quickly, which you're not seeing uh, at the moment. Um, and I think if you go back to the 70s and the 60s, we are, we're in a fundamental, differently, different structure of an economy mm -hmm. to back then. Back then, you had uh, price controls that were being lifted. You had trade unions. The, the power dynamic between companies and workers was, was so, so, so different. And importantly, one of the, the big differences I don't think many economists quite appreciate or academic economists appreciate is how financialized the economy has become. So, you know, from the 80s onwards, since the ba big bang deregulations onwards, there's so much financialization, you know, of the economy. I mean, the amount of like, you know, like the, the most actively traded market in the world is foreign exchange. Six trillion dollars is traded every day in FX markets. You know, 10 years ago, it was four trillion dollars. You know, so it's gone up like 50 percent, but world trade hasn't gone up 50 percent. But what has gone up is all this financialization. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that tells you that uh, a big outlet for extra money printing or high, low rates is the financial sector always. Um, whereas in the 70s and before, you didn't have the outlet. So all of that money printing or whatever just had to go to the real economy. That, that was the only outlet. There was capital controls back then. 
there was limits to how much you dollars you could take offshore. That was the creation of the offshore euro dollar market. Um, so I think that's one kind of big difference today. There's this outlet that you have for inflation that you didn't have before. And so for me to 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 really see a truly inflationary paradigm going forward, I think we need to see a reduction of the power of big companies. So more worker power, you know, employment rights. You'd need to see some kind of uh, shrinking of the financial sector, perhaps even capital controls. You know, what, once you kind of do all of these steps, then you'll end up in an environment where you could have structurally higher inflation and higher wages. In the absence of that, I think that in the end, you know, you, you know, once the supply chain issues or supply side issues, you know, ease up, then inflation will come back down and we won't, you know, have this. And, and so the expectation spiral won't be enough to be able to keep uh, inflation high once all of these energy things start to come down. Well, Can we linger gonna... for a second on the, um, just Richard, I just want to want to tie together a loose end here because you did mention the labor market, Bilal, and I just wanted to maybe run a couple of things by you because yeah. it occurs to me that this is a very different labor market than the 70s in a few ways, but in one especially important way, and that is that there are no labor unions. You know? So how yeah. how do workers now advocate for higher wages. And it seems to me that the most common um, mechanism that maybe economists would point to would be mobility, right? The ability to leave one job for another higher paying job. And I'm wondering if this dynamic is complicated by the fact that housing prices have shot up so substantially in and so quickly in so many of the major employment centers. And so, you know, if you if you bought a house locking in a 30-year mortgage at a 2 or 3% rate and rates are now 4.5%, 5% and you're looking at having to sell your house in San Francisco or Austin or Dallas or Miami or whatever and move to another place to get a job at a higher wage, then you're looking at a very substantial increase to your cost of living in terms of needing to now um, buy a new home and get mortgage financing at rates that are a full 50 to 80% higher than what you were currently locked in at before. So I think this may be substantially limiting labor mobility and therefore substantially limiting the ability for people to move jobs. And that may be constraining this uptick in wages. And I'm just, I'm also wondering wh whether maybe this massive increase in house prices and of course, in other asset prices has created such a wealth effect. There's less of an urgency for um, workers to either re-enter the labor market or feel urgency to enter the labor market um, and therefore increase the supply of labor um, and the urgency for people that are currently working to seek a higher paying job because they're they're making so much more money on the appreciation of their home and the appreciation of their of their equity portfolios than they would from you know a 10% increase in their in their pay any thoughts on those yeah I, I think they're all they're all excellent really really good points and uh, you know I agree with them you know all, all of those points that you mentioned I mean for sure there is uh, you know one of the big factors Actually, there's two big factors around mobility that become very important. You know, one is house prices, as you've said, you know, it's hard to move, you know, from, you know, uh, less economically developed areas to more prosperous areas because of, you know, the, uh, the, the housing costs. 
But and and there's also a direct mobility issue as well, where if you have poor transport links um, uh, within uh, areas, even within a town or within a city or within a state, if the transport links are poor, that also impinges labor mobility as well. In the sense that if the uh, you know if the subway lines or the public buses aren't running that actively, then it, it restricts the types of jobs you can get even within states. Um, and not everyone can afford a car either, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so you kind of have to take that in, into account. So one of I think one of the neglected things in um, in lots of these inequality studies and labor market studies is is about uh, mobility, transport links within cities and within states. And that, that's a big kind of uh, kind of issue um, on, on the housing. The the other related point is there's a generational issue here as well, which I think, it, you know, we also have to appreciate that. The young generation, people in their 20s, essentially don't have houses, can't afford a house. And so they're they're basically in a really, really difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic specifically has really hurt uh, recent graduates from university. And anyone in the education system has basically had a horrible time. And so so there is this issue of 20-somethings in particular, but even 30-somethings to some extent, who, who are really, you know, kind of doing worse than the same point of the of the previous generation of boomers or Gen X even, so millennials or Gen Z, um, and so that there's a generational gap here as well, uh, which is important to recognise. And interestingly, what the pandemic showed was that from a policy perspective, the uh, the health and safety and the welfare of the older generation was elevated above the younger generation. So a very strong decision was said: okay, whatever it takes to protect the older generation, will do. So house prices went up, you know, the economy was shut down to prevent older people getting affected. But the consequence of that was younger people, ed- there was an educational loss, they weren't able to get the property. So I think this is going to be an issue, a real structural issue that we're only now starting to kind of appreciate what's, what this means. In some ways, it's almost like a lost generation that you're, you're, you're going to have. Um, and there's a parallel with wars as well, when you have a war you know, you, you kind of have this effect where there's a kind of a lost generation, you know, you know, because they've sort of suffered from this all. Um, the, the other point I would make about the, uh, the mobility issue is that, because um, some of the points you mentioned about housing and that, that was already the case before the pandemic, that, that was a kind of an issue in terms of mo- mobility between states. Um, I think an interesting feature about the pandemic specifically is uh, how has technology now entered the services sector because the the narrative for everyone over the last 30 40 years has been that technology has really disrupted the manufacturing sector it's allowed globalization offshoring and all of that type of stuff but the service sector has been relatively untouched by technology in terms of automation but i think during the pandemic what's happened is that lots of service jobs have been automated so for example uh, I'm sure this you see this in, in Canada and North America, but in the UK, when you go to a supermarket store, um, they have self-checkouts. That was already the case before the pandemic, but now everything is self-checkouts. If you go to like a, um, like a, a food place, like a sandwich place, increasingly in London now, they're self-checkout tills. They're, they're getting rid of the staff. So you, you get your sandwich, you just put it on the scanner, and then you walk out. So that you need less staff for that. Um, in terms of food delivery services, what's happening now is that in the past, you'd order from a, uh, you'd use a delivery service and the restaurant on the high street would cook the food and a moped would then deliver it to your house. Now what's happening is those same restaurants now are using uh, what's called 
dark kitchens in industrial estates to cook the food under the same brand name. So they no longer need to have that uh, restaurant or kitchen in expensive high streets. Now you deliver food from remotely. Um, I have a startup, you know, so I've been, you know, hiring people and I've been hiring people remotely. In the past, I would have just hired people in London and New York because I'm in the finance sector. Very expensive. Now, most of my staff don't, aren't from London or New York and they don't want, want to move to London or New York. My, the salary cost goes lower because your labor market's broader. So suddenly it flattens out the labor market. So suddenly, uh, you know, the mobility now is gone into the digital space where, okay, I need somebody who's a computer programmer or I need an accountant. In the past, you'd go to an accountant in your city. Now you don't need to. You know, you, you can do it over Zoom. They could be based in a much cheaper sort of cost center. So I think we're only now starting to see the impacts of this. And this is really disinflationary. I mean, Agreed. so in essence here, what this is doing is it's basically saying that we thought physical geography was some kind of constraint on the labor market. But now because of Zoom and like what we're doing here, suddenly it allows, especially service sector jobs, you, you can suddenly open it all up. Um, and I think that's something that we're, you know, we, you know, we, we aren't quite, we, we aren't quite sure what the full consequences of that. So for me, that the technology impact on services and the lost generation are, are two kind of outcomes of the pandemic that, aren't discussed enough that we're you know we kind of all know intuitively um and and policymakers aren't talking about these things you know because obviously they're just dealing they're putting fires out all the time but from a structural perspective these are the things that are, are going to have profound impacts on on all of our lives and you you mentioned this sort of mega trend is something that you've been keenly focused on yeah. in, the, in the service sector um uh sort of dislocation, if you will. What, what are some of the ways that you're suggesting people um, uh, position themselves? Like, is there, is there particular stocks that you're suggesting? Is there particular areas or, or segments of the market that you could share with everyone? So, so I know you go through your framework, mega trends, yeah, cyclical yeah. trends, and then how do we, you know, okay, now we've got an idea. How do we manifest it through actual positions? And I'm wondering if you can Sure, if it's proprietary, that's fine no, too. That'll, be, that'll no, get no, them even, we'll, we'll, that'll make them even yeah, more keen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the, the challenge with this, this is that many of these megatrends kind of link to very fashionable megatrends as well. So part of the whole flattening of the labor market, uh, the service sector tech play is, is a technology platform play, like Zoom and Microsoft and all these sorts of things. So there's a tech element to it, which is already well-priced and overpriced for, for lots of other reasons, not, not just that. Um, so I think it's hard to play in that direction. Um, but what it does, the way you can play it is through um, taking a view that inflation will be structurally low at, uh, after this all. So all the people uh, that are kind of looking for a return to 70s style, like a decade of inflation, for me, that's a way of playing it to say, actually, no, we aren't going to have a decade of inflation because we're going through the structural sort of change. So you always want to kind of fade the, the regime change people. We definitely do have inflation now and it will last maybe for the rest of this year, if not longer, maybe next year. But in the end, you know, if, if long term inflation starts to take off, I'd fade, I'd fade that in, in the DM world. But I do think where there is value is EM in the sense that technology will open up the EM side, places like India, for example, you know, which already have quite a vibrant service sector. Um, and they are kind of, uh, you know, they are kind of thinking about their long term goals. It, it kind of opens up EM in, in a way uh, 
that um, wasn't the case before. Um, so countries with you know fairly well educated uh, you know labor force, you know especially at sort of the top tier, those economies will do particularly well. And you know EM is just trading really poorly, um, and so so that that could be you know a way to play this. Is there any chance that the the, the push to automation actually? I mean, there's the, in order to automate, you need software, but you also need the machines and mechanics, and uh, oftentimes some of the more rare um, inputs to that from a commodities perspective. Does that drive that commodity bull run a little bit longer? Yeah, or? yeah, no, that's a good point. I should, yeah, I should also sort of mention that. You know, um, I mean, just to kind of put this into historical context, it feels to me now. It reminds me a lot of the early 2000s, you know, where I remember in the 90s, it was all that dot com tech stocks and everything like that. And so it really felt like we had left the physical world. You know, it was all everything was on screens and the Internet, information superhighway and all of this type of stuff that we were talking about in the 90s. And suddenly the dot com crash happened in the early 2000s and 2000. And we had the rise of China um, as this middle class grew and suddenly commodity prices just went off the charts because you know, China was basically had to like use all the world's commodities to build its roads. And so suddenly the 2000s, it was all about, you know, nuts and bolts and oil, you know, and commodities. So we went from the digital realm back to the physical world, realizing there are constraints to, to the physicality. There's a physicality to, to the world. Um, and so for the next 10 years, you had this super cycle. So I think there's something similar going on now where we've come off this period of like tech this, tech that, and um, and we've forgotten the physicality of the world. And obviously, we're seeing that now with supply chain issues. But all of this tells you that, you know, there, there's limits on, uh, there's constraints on all of this automation, production, energy transition as well is, is a classic one where, yeah, that's going to require huge investment um, you know, like proper physical infrastructure investment, which will require all of these inputs. So, so no, I do agree. I think, you know, commodities are, are likely to have, continue to have a, a really sort of strong, strong run from here, even from current levels. To press pause on a second on the uh, forward looking part of the conversation, which I'm sure we'll return to, but I wanted to uh, pull on the thread that we were discussing earlier. And I heard you uh, on a recent podcast with uh, one of your researchers, Dominique, and, and she was saying how she puts it at 50%. Her base case is now that in the next 12 months, we're going to have some form of recession. So I wonder if you might speak to some of the uh, leading indicators and some of the parameters that she's looking at to, to make that type of assertion. And with that in mind, the, the whole conversation about tightening, does that sort of suggest that? Powell and team might uh, just be walking into yet another policy blunder? <laughs> no, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thematically, yeah, I think for me, it's as, as a markets person, you know, I always like to think about the next big theme, you know, and that's hence this conversation with Dominique and our team. You know, so last like, year or two, it's been, um, you know, inflation. Everyone's been talking about inflation, inflation, inflation. And even today, inflation is the big topic. But for me, the, the story is really recession. That that's the next iteration of this all. If you just if you just you know fast forward everything, the next move has to be a recession. I mean, the question is just timing um, and how how soon will that happen? Um, and so I think for me, the inflation stories is really there's huge amount of ink has been spilt on inflation. So I feel like every side of the argument inflation is well known, but the recession story isn't well known. So for me, the thing I'm just focusing on intensively this year is recession, recession, recession. Um, and trying to understand how a recession could happen. 
Um, now, to start with, um, if you just look historically, like over the last 30, 40 years, you, you find this interesting phenomena that whenever you have a Fed tightening cycle and rising oil prices, almost always you get a recession. You know, uh, whether it was coincidental or not, that, that happens. You know, so 2007, oil shock. Fed was tightening, uh, and then you had the recession. 1990, the same thing happened. 70s, it happened numerous times as well. Because what, what you're doing there is that if the Fed's raising rates, that's tightening you know, policy, just costs go up in different ways. It's just harder to get things done. Um, and oil is a big input, you know, cost. Effectively, it's like a tax. So we, we have that double whammy now. And from the start of the year, if anything, everything's accelerated. The Fed's becoming even more hawkish and oil prices are going up even more. So, so the background, I think, is very conducive to some kind of recessionary dynamics. Then in terms of the specifics, the key thing for me, if we take the US as the example, because um, Europe is probably easier to see a case for a recession for Europe because it's, you know, it, it, it's not energy independent, but the US is the more interesting one. Uh, the the key things for the U.S. have been, you know, we, we had this big binge in goods consumption in the U.S. Everyone, you know, you, you had in one or two years, you had the same amount of goods consumption growth than you had in the previous 10 years. So a massive over over, over swing to one side. That's starting to fall now. Um, and so the idea was that the service side will pick up the slack. It will really start to pick up. And it, it hasn't. It's, it's recovering, but not dramatically so. So that tells you that there's something... The, the other part of the engine isn't isn't working that well. So that's that's kind of a bit weaker. Why is that overall? It's it's partly, I think, to do with this things we were talking about about the labor market that's a bit weaker than we think. But fundamentally, so if real wages are falling, that's a problem. It, it's just harder to to get things moving. Then on top of that, if you look at the inventory cycle in the US, there was a big inventory buildup in Q4 of last year. So basically companies have been basically building up their stocks because they were you know, they had low inventory before, so they had to build up the inventory. Plus, they were worried that they couldn't get stock, so they double ordered everything. So we've had this inventory cycle. When you have that, often that that takes away growth from the future because you're building up all the inventory now. Um, and and then the other side of this is is the fiscal side that we had last year or two. We've had this huge fiscal stimulus in the US, but this year we aren't going to have anything. And so the net effect of that is you have a negative fiscal impulse. You go from fiscal stimulus to nothing that leads to a drag on growth. And then with midterms coming up, it's unlikely that anything's going to happen. And after midterms, the Congress will probably flip. And so the, no new fiscal will, will happen. So you get a, you know, a negative fiscal impulse, you get the oil shock, you get negative real income. So all of this is basically pushing you know, the US closer and closer to, to a recession. So that's kind of the general direction where we're kind of going in. Now, timing-wise, what you what you need to see to time, you know. So this tells just this tells me that in the next year or two, there's a very high probability of a recession. Now, fine-tuning the timing, you know, the the best things to look at are probably you need to see the PMI numbers start to come down. Um, so when that starts, when they start to fall much more sharply, that usually gives you a good sign that recession is imminent, i.e., in the next few months. And then you need to see uh, jobless claims really start to pick up, you know, again. Um, so for me, payrolls, jobless claims, and the ISM PMIs are, are the indicators you look at to fine tune the timing. Um, so, so the background for me is high chance of recession in the, in the next year or two. And then fine tuning it, you look at these other indicators to fine tune it all. Um, and in the case of the Fed, 
I think the Fed is kind of running into a blunder here in the sense that they're, they're going to have to over-tighten. Then they suddenly realize the economy is kind of slowing down sharply. And then at that point, they'll have to decide to pivot back to dovishness, which I'm sure they probably would end up doing, or continue to hike to really wring out any inflation in the economy. So help, help sort of reconcile this recession view over the next year, year and a half with, again, this resiliency in equities, right? I mean, it, I feel like we've got a recessionary tailwind. We've got supply constraints on the inflation side, both in terms of the fact that, that China is still struggling with the pandemic. They're still on a zero COVID policy. They're still shutting down entire provinces and ports at the same time as we're getting four to five million barrels of oil coming offline sometime in the next few weeks um, out of Russia. All the other secondary and tertiary impacts of the war. And yet we still have this, you know, U.S. equity markets within five or six percent of all time highs. Like Hmm. something has to give here. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you're 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 right there. I mean, the, the first thing I would say is that Chinese stocks have been trading pretty poorly, and rest oh, of the world sure. stocks in general have generally been trading poorly. Um, now, in terms of the relationship between stocks and recessions, typically stocks tend to weaken much closer to the point of the recession. So, so there is a timing issue here where rates markets tend to just because of the nature of rates market, they tend to be much more forward looking. And stocks tend to almost like look at the next quarter, you know, so so that it matters whether the recession is in the next three months or if it's uh, Q1 next year, you know, and if we're saying it's Q1 next year, it's it's too far away for stocks to really kind of be affected by that. Um, that said, you know, if, if there is a recession kind of on the horizon, to me, it tells me at the very least stocks should trade sideways Um in, in, in general, which they kind of, in, in some broad sense, they have, um, especially for the US, what I like to look at is the Russell 2000 rather than the S&P, because I think the Russell reflects the economy much better because the S&P has the tech companies in there, which are kind of global and they're kind of a tech play and they're not sort of linked to the economy directly. And so the but Russell- they should be even more vulnerable, right? Given that they derive so much more of the revenue from outside the US and the rest of the world is much more vulnerable to all of the, you know, First of all, you've got the whole dynamic of when the U.S. catches cold, the rest of the world catches the flu, which is typically what happens. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that all of these other countries are much more impacted by either um, a commodity price, major commodity price rises and or just proximity to the war and conflict and other types of um, frictions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it depends on the types of uh, international companies in the US that we're looking at. So I, I would say, you know, like US manufacturing companies or certain like banks and so on, they would for sure be impacted by slowdown in the rest of the world. For tech companies, it's a bit trickier because, you know, if you look at the behavior of tech companies or the mega tech companies, they sometimes behave cyclically, but sometimes they behave like utilities as well because they have you know, uh, attractive like dividends or buyback schemes and such. So, so there's this kind of safe haven dynamic that you have within uh, big tech that makes it a bit more tough, tough to kind of you know, have the read through into the, the cycle. Um, I think that's and- a, that's certainly the perception. I mean, I agree. I think big tech is being utilized here by global investors as a safe haven trade. Yeah. And 
I'm personally skeptical. Yeah, yeah, and it's a fair point. It's it's a fair point, you know, and point well taken, and and it would be sort of vulnerable. I mean, I do think that the risk for big tech, for me, would be if we see this, you know, the the way big tech isn't uh, responding to higher rates. I think that's interesting. You know, it should reflect, you know, because if the argument is big tech gives you the yields, if interest rates are going up, then suddenly it doesn't give you the yields. And so it should be repriced sort of lower. So, so, so I think there's that. I, I think recently, um, I think the reason SP has done well is that US, number one, is outside of the conflict zone. So US gets that benefit. Um, yep. US earnings have been relatively strong as well throughout this whole period. Um, and, then, um, and then also there's this kind of reopening dynamic that also to some extent supports US stocks as, as well. Um, but I agree. I mean, I think, it's, it's really a, a question or a matter of time before we see uh, another, you know, down move in, in, in equities. We, we did see somewhat of a down move in equities, but then the bounce was quite strong recently. Um, I mean, to be honest, I've been surprised about how quickly markets have shrugged off the war risk premium. You know, yeah. I, I was Agreed. kind of long oil into this Shocking. all and, and suddenly the reversals happened and I was like stunned how, how quickly that's happened. Um, and so Could there is probably the cleanest dirty shirt. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so, I, yeah. I think so, there's that is, is, as well. And, um, and I think also there's been um, a lot of position unwinding, VAR shocks, margin calls. There's all, there's all sorts of weird stuff going on in markets right now. And so when that happens, it makes me cautious about reading too much into the price of something. Because it could just be some big position on wine, some quarter end rebalancing, some fund is blown up or something, or you know, and, and that's so a really important point to, yeah. to remember through all this yeah. for sure. Yeah, I think this is something that we have touched upon on, on several episodes and in conversations internally. The uh, the idea that the price discovery is more and more skewed by the particular circumstances of market microstructures and what's happening in certain sectors of the markets and big players unwinding or putting on positions and, and how that affects uh, the signaling mechanism that a, a, the price of an asset might, might offer. So as you're painting this, this global macro picture, and you have touched on this to some extent, but I wonder if you might give us not investment advice, but sort of a general framework or, 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 or general positioning, how you're expressing some of these uh, global macro views across asset classes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, I kind of have this uh, kind of almost sounds counterintuitive, but, you know, in, in my view, when you're in this kind of unstable inflationary environment, central rights hiking, stagflation, that whole mix, my bias is actually to be overweight cash in that environment. And so many people say, you know, you shouldn't go long cash because in real terms, your cash goes goes away. But my point is that uh, it doesn't lose you money in nominal terms. And the risk is that if you have money in bonds and equities, you're, there's, there's a high chance that you could make losses on your capital in nominal terms. And so for me, in a year like this, where you're, there's a lot of uncertainty about re- what regime you're in, you know, there's lots of geopolitics, it's all about survival almost, you know? So like the first rule of investment is survive, you know, don't, yeah. don't get wiped out. Return, return of your capital. Not yeah, return, return of your, your capital. capital. So for yeah. me, that's the overarching mantra is that. And so one is to be overweight cash, underweight equities and underweight bonds. So if I had a choice between bonds, equities and cash, I'd pick cash. Now, the only thing I'd be willing to go long in is commodities, 
uh, because I do think that we're in this environment where everything geopolitics and supply chain, all of this type of stuff just points to higher commodities. Rich commodities, I think you just have a basket of commodities because there's a strong case for, you know, metals, energy, uh, wheat, fertilizer, all, all, you know, it's it's just, you know, every, everything's kind of affected in some way. Um, so overall, that's kind of my basic stance. Keep it simple. Pretty much stay away from bonds and equities. Be long cash. Um, which also gives you optionality as well. So for after big drops in other asset classes, you can use that cash and buy something um, and long commodities. Um, I also, and we haven't talked about this so far, I'd also be small long crypto as well. Um, now, part of that is a structural view that I think crypto is you know, slowly becoming an accepted asset class. Um, but also I think there's some interesting features about crypto that provide some diversification because from a portfolio perspective, what you want is diversification. So equities, bonds, commodities, and so on. You know, so the question is, what is the diversification that crypto brings you? Um, and for me, like at the, at the fundamental level, the diversification it brings you is diversification of institutional exposure. So if you imagine if you're holding dollar-based assets, you're exposed to the US regulatory, financial, legal system euros it's a european system renminbi it's a chinese system rupee it's an indian system and crypto is independent of any country by its very nature it's decentralized permissionless internet based and so you're exposing yourself to kind of a a neutral institution um, Can I press pause on that a different ecosystem sure. yeah because i because i kind of feel like i don't know i just just where are all the people that are going to be spending these crypto, um, this crypto wealth going to live? Because, I mean, are they going to yeah. live on a convoy in the middle of the Pacific? Because otherwise they are eventually going to be subject to the regulatory environment that in which they're resident, right? For all of the other things that matter in their life, right? The things that they're going to consume, the, the assets that they're going to own, et cetera, right? So I'm not sure that decentralizing the transactions necessarily allows people to disengage from the regulatory environment in which they're situated. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's a fair point. I mean, there still is, I mean, the, the key point of regulation is really the on-ramp uh, process of where you go from dollars into the crypto world. Once you're in the crypto world, that area is much more harder to regulate because, uh, you know, uh, because if you transact from one wallet to another on a decentralized exchange, no one can stop you doing that. that that's just going to happen. And, and, and that can't be uh, kind of captured. You, know, yeah, you also have self, self-sovereignty. If you hold assets in a dollar-based or renminbi-based, you are subject to the, to the sovereignty of that jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and just as in, as in a whole bunch of truckers in Canada learned, for simply, you know, protesting you can have all of your assets seized yeah without yeah. question yeah so 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 that, that, that's kind of one side of it that once you're inside the crypto world um no regulation can stop you from transacting with somebody else and they can't take that money away from you uh once you're inside it it's, it's basically who are the gatekeepers who allow you in so that's one thing now uh, aside from that, you know, what, what's the use case of crypto is, is the other point, you know, so let's say everything's kind of fine and stuff. One basic use case is that, uh, say something like Bitcoin, if that is uh, a scarce asset, 
uh, where you can guarantee ownership of that scarce asset and there's limited supply, then it's no different from gold. It's just that it's on the internet rather than gold. So whatever the business, whatever the use investment cases for gold, you can make the same case for Bitcoin. It's just in the digital realm. You know, it's, it's a scarce supply. It can't be increased. So for Bitcoin specifically, you have that use case. Outside of that, the other use case then is when you start to go into the other uh, types of um, uh, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, which are programmable. So within there, you can basically start to create all sorts of additional crypto-based features which have use cases. So one is the whole decentralized finance where you can basically you know, start lending and borrowing and things like that. So you've created a little mini financial industry on, on Ethereum, just like there's a financial industry in the real world. You've created one on the decentralized world. Then there's a whole NFT metaverse side where you can start to buy and sell um, items within games, you know, which is a you know which is a whole digital economy. So to the extent that video games is an industry, then there's a crypto version of that as well, and the blockchain allows you to do certain things that you couldn't do before. So you suddenly start to create all of these additional new 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 kind of like virtual economies, you could say. I like the. Uh this framework and these uh, the thesis behind the bullish view on crypto. But I, I wonder if we might bring it back a step and say, you have a background in, in currencies. So yeah, yeah. we've talked about a little bit about the dollar. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you feel that it too is the cleanest dirty shirt. And I, I wanted to frame this in the context of the recent sanctions uh, that have uh, been enacted and the idea now that asset and treasury is going to be seized. And, and, and so what that does for the dollar reserve currency, also the petrodollar system coming undone if, in fact, Saudi Arabia starts to fully cater to the East, particularly to China. And so the, the Pax Americana was already on its way out to some extent, or everybody could, could, could kind of see the writing on the wall, but now that seems to have been uh, precipitated by, by recent events. I wonder if you might contextualize gold, currencies, and crypto in sort of this, this, uh, this relative yeah, game yeah. Of, of currencies. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would kind of make a distinction between the, the price of the dollar right now, the ups and downs of the dollar, and whether the dollar is the dominant currency in the world. So, for example, the dollar has been the dominant currency since pretty much, you could say, the First World War, definitely since the Second World War. Um, and over that period of time, so since the Second World War, the dollar has, has gone up lots of, you know, for 10 years, it's gone down for 10 years, gone up for 10 years, gone down for 10 years, gone up. I mean, it's, it's followed this long-term cycle. So, it, you know, uh, and during that entire period, the dollar was the top dog. So we kind of have to separate out whether the dollar is strong today or not from the dollar being the dominant currency. So what do we mean by dominant currency? What we mean by dominant currency is that it's the most used currency when it comes to global trade, that people, if they have to pick a currency, they pick the dollar, whether it's a commodity, a petrodollar trade, related trade, whether it's uh, if you invoice an importer exporter you'll pick dollars if you're dealing in a in a non-us country they, they won't pick euros they pick dollars reserve managers central banks which currency do they hold do they hold the dollar or do they hold another currency and then financial transactions what's the dominant currency in financial transactions which is the most transactions in the world is in financial and what we've seen is over the last 10 15 years the dollar is becoming more and more and more dominant so today you know, the dollar is more dominant than it's ever been in terms of the use in financial in, in everything, you know, so it kind of sounds odd, but it, it's used more than ever before. Um, and so 
in order for the dollar to be toppled, you need a couple of things to happen. You know, one is the key thing for me is who can replace the dollar in the financial system, in financial markets. You know, so for example, with interest rate swaps, um, you know, bonds, equities, you know, the, the trading of everything in the world. Who who are the alternatives? It can't be crypto. It can't be gold. They're too small. They're they're you know they're minor players. It's either the euro or the renminbi. They're the only two players that matter because euro is a big enough you know economy. But what euro has shown after the Russia thing is that Europe is subordinate to the US. You know, in some ways, that you know Europe uh, you know will just basically follow whatever the US says. So Europe isn't really you know uh, you know really going to push this that much. Um, so China is really the alternative. So the question then is, does the rest of the world want to hold Chinese renminbi? Um, and that's the, that's not clear to me. So and does China have the capacity? I mean, one of the benefits of the U.S. dollar is the depth of financial instruments on which you can uh, park these dollars. So the the depth of the Chinese sovereign bond market, the threat of capital controls. Yeah, yeah. All this. All this suggests that you know the U.S. continues to be the cleanest, dirty shirt because yeah, absolutely. When push so that, comes that's to shove, my, my my view, you know, and and China in some ways, if you look at what they're doing, they aren't necessarily trying to replace the dollar on the global stage. What they're doing is they're doing uh, strategic bilateral agreements. So they recently did an agreement with Indonesia, where all the trade will be in renminbi. All the trade between China and Indonesia will be in renminbi now, not in dollars. Previously, it was in dollars. They then have to sell dollars to buy renminbi. Malaysia, the same. They're trying to do that with Saudi. But even if they do it with Saudi, it still doesn't mean that the world uh, will want to hold renminbi. You know, it's just that that particular trade transaction that's between China. The, the, the funny thing there is that those are both pegged to the U.S. dollar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah, well, I, yeah, what, yeah. sure, do whatever yeah. you want. It's still pegged. Yeah. To I mean, the real the real test too. is will. Uh, a non-Chinese country want to do a trade with Saudi in renminbi or not? Or would they say, I want it in dollars? So right. it's, it's always about the, the, the third country. You know, that's the point gotcha. about the US. You know? So you know, if you look at the size of the biggest economies in the world, so Euro, Europe you know, is one of the biggest economies. They favor the dollar over the renminbi for sure. Um, uh, Brazil, you know, who are they going to pick? The dollar. Uh, India, for sure, not, not the renminbi. They're going to pick the dollar. Japan, the dollar. Um, so, so when you start to kind of get to the nuts and bolts, it's not it's not clear. What about the um, idea of a basket, um, which has been sort of bantied about and is kind of now percolating up a little bit again with the basket of currencies and commodities and things like that? Is that yeah? It's sort yeah, of I mean, the I, I, bank core idea proposed by yeah, yeah. the bank core yeah. uh, you know I, idea. Well, I, I think we have to sort of separate the sort of two things out where. What you have seen already is that a country like China now doesn't manage its currency against the dollar, it manages it against a basket. Singapore does that as well, India does that as well, and their reserves reflect that basket. So that, that that's kind of you know, kind of happened at that level. But then when you look at global financial markets, you know, if you're trading in equities or whatever, you you don't buy a basket of currencies, you you buy a dollar and then the dollar become something, you know, use the dollar to buy treasuries or equities, or you sell the dollar to buy a euro asset. So it, it, it's hard to use that that basket. Um, now, the Bancor system was almost like what Keynes said was, you you kind of almost sent up, set up like a parallel FX market, which clears everyone's current accounts with this Bancor credit. 
Um, so that's much more revolutionary in some ways, uh, because that's basically saying that you have some kind of rules of engagement around trade balances have been balanced or reached some levels. And then the bank core currency will be the mechanism through which you, you do that. Um, so that has some kind of underlying framework for current accounts to kind of be balanced between countries. Um, so we're far, far away from that. You know, the US won't agree to do that. The Chinese won't agree to do that. Europeans won't agree to do that. You know, nobody it's the would. best idea no one will do. Yeah, the best idea nobody will do. <laughs> and so that that allows... Um, and then and this goes to a deeper point, which is that why, why is the US uh, the kind of the dominant uh, currency that's used everywhere? And if you think about it, what it come, goes back to is the fact that the US is la- the largest consumer in the world. You know, even the Chinese don't, doesn't have really a big consumer base yet. Um, it has consumption, but it still relies on exports to the U.S. and the rest of the world. Now, everybody's been telling the Chinese that they have to reduce the power of the production side and boost consumption. But they haven't done that for lots of different reasons. And so in the end, everyone ends up having to trade with the U.S. consumer through either directly or indirectly. And so ultimately, if you want to usurp the dollar, you need to have another economy that becomes a big consumer for the world so that everybody has to interact with that entity. But don't you think that's in the best interests of the United States? I mean, one of the, one of the arguments that I find most compelling, and, and I fully credit Luke Grumman with, with um, seeding this for me, but one of the things I find most compelling is that perhaps the dollar system no longer best serves the interests of the United States. You know, because what, what we what's effectively done over the last 30, 40 years is it's hollowed out the entire manufacturing base of the United States. And what we've seen in the last, at least the last couple of years, is this onshoring wave. It's and and it's it's the feds and the states setting aggressive incentives and policies to bring manufacturing back on shore. I, I wonder if it if it still serves the U.S. to have the rest of the world do all of the manufacturing and for the U.S. to simply send them bits of paper. You know, in, in a world where the U.S. wants to see other countries come online and bring online their developed consumer base so that the U.S. can actually have an industrial sector, you know, if that ends up being a, a sustained policy of the U.S., the U.S. itself may have an incentive to undermine the global dollar system and and put in place a a broader system backed by some other um, collateral framework. No, that's that's a fair point. And actually, there's there's an interesting historical precedent to all of this, which is that you know before the dollar, the pound was the dominant currency, mm-hmm. um, and if you look at what led to the pound giving up its like dominant status, which was just after the First World War, it was the decision of the UK. The UK devalued and moved off the gold standard. So the UK actively said, we're giving this up because it's just too much of a burden for us. So right. what history it tells was imposed, you is- It was imposed in the UK because they couldn't foot the bill for WW1, right? So at the end of the day, it, it, it was their active decision because they had no choice to some extent. Well, no, they did have a choice, but it would have it would have led to decades of austerity, a massive yeah, depression, recession. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. well, so so it was did the they politically really... expedient solution. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they sure. basically destroyed all sorts of alliances, you know, and allowed them to not suffer as much of a Great Depression as, as other, other countries did at the time. But what that tells you, and the reason for bringing this up, is that it's not so much the challenger that displaces the dominant currency. It's the dominant currency itself Agreed. that decides yes. on a course of action to, to end it. Now, what's the cost of the dollar being the dominant currency? I think unlike the gold standard period where that if you're the top dog, there's a deflationary bias to being the, the top currency. Now, by being in, in a freely floating world, the, the bias is um, uh, financial inflation. That's what tends to happen. Because what, what happens with the dollar being the reserve currency is that it allows the US to keep interest rates lower than they would normally be if the dollar wasn't the top dominant currency because the rest of the world needs to hold treasuries as collateral. There's always this dollar shortage and scarcity, collateral scarcity always. There's always excess demand for treasuries. No matter what the US does, there's always excess demand for treasuries, which always keeps down US interest rates. So if you keep down interest rates in the US, then that leads to all sorts of bubbles and financial engineering and all of, all of these sorts of things. And, and tech stocks will never drop. And textiles never drop, and so um, and so that that's a consequence of this, you know. And and also by doing this, you also say that if you want to be the top currency, you can't have any capital controls. That companies and everybody can move to really easily. And you globalize everything. Then, as as Adam has just said, you know that means that okay, cheaper manufacturing offshore, you just do that. So th that's the cost of having the, the you know, the, the, the dollar. Um, now, I think it does make some sense to scale that back and, and to pivot the other way. Uh, but I think it's going to be really hard for the US to do that because all the interests are the other way. Um, you know, for all the talk of, uh, you know, backlash against the establishment, in the end, the establishment doesn't want this to change. You know, it's the financial centers are super, super cool. Tech companies like the low interest rates. Big companies want, you know, want to be able to, uh, you know, locate their not only their um, not only their manufacturing plants offshore, but also their balance sheets. They like to sort of put it uh, in all sorts of offshore centers to minimize their tax bills and so on. So, so there's lots of interests to to keep the system as it as it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the view that ultimately the political policy direction at the margin is beholden to the preferences of the median voter. And we're certainly the policies of the last 30 to 40 years have most benefited and continue to most benefit the largest voter blocks, which is the older Gen X's most, but mostly the boomers, right? Yeah. And as, as we move from that regime to a regime where the median voter is um, dominated by those in younger Gen X, um, millennials, and Gen Z, then, you know, they may have very different preferences and they may be looking at the policies of the last 40 years and saying, we're now priced out of everything that our parents wanted so badly. And, you know, that they, that, that allowed them to make a life and that are preventing us to recreate the life that our parents led. And, and they may seek to unwind that and politically it may become feasible at that stage. Now, yeah, I don't, I'm not suggesting that that's, that's a 2024 issue. <laughs> no. It may be a 2028 issue, right? But, yeah. but I, I think at least 
the, the, the potential for this is on the horizon in a way that we haven't seen in the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, this does go back to the just generational uh, component that Bilal has mentioned a couple of times that I think that we keep coming back to. And I think obviously this is a, a uh, topic that we could spend hours on, particularly when it pertains to U.S. dominance. I mean, the U.S.'s ability to bring on fresh blood, the, the immigration policies of, of the U.S. allow them to replenish their, their, their labor pool, whereas the Chinese labor pool is getting old before it becomes wealthy. And the same could be said about Russia to a much larger extent and Europe as well, and their inability to integrate their immigrants to their uh, uh, to their countries. I mean, uh, the UK aside, but that that's a big problem in, in France and Germany. So the I think the demographic component uh, of all of all that we've been talking about cannot be uh, overstated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Bilal, you've been very generous with your time. I think we're we're coming up on time now. Uh, before we wrap, I did want to ask you. As a fellow podcaster and, and <laughs> with, with the benefit of, of speaking to so many interesting minds, what are some of the uh, themes uh, that you've been uh, exposed to more recently or, or, or views that you've been exposed to more recently that have challenged your uh, previous understanding on certain topics? And how, how have, what have been some of the topics where your views have shifted meaningfully after a uh, conversation with guests and, and, and their vantage point? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I would say one, uh, one thing has been probably on crypto. You know, I was very, very skeptical on crypto until I started to have some guests, especially guests who were from the traditional finance world. So I had one guest, Tanya Reef, who used to work at Alphadine and um, a number of other, you know, high profile hedge funds. So she's from the macro world and, having a conversation with her was very helpful to kind of see some of the aspects of crypto, which I was kind of neglecting. I was so focused on some of the negative aspects that, you know, I, I wasn't really uh, uncritically looking at crypto. So, so I think that's one, you know, that has been helpful. Um, the other one um, was, um, you know, the, I've had some conversations with some around uh, risk management, you know, where, I've, I've tended to not focus on the value of cash in portfolios because uh, I've always been in financial markets for so long. You know, it's always more, I, I don't know, you always get pushed into doing something. You know, there's this, there's this hyperactivity. And so I've had a number of podcast guests who've just said um, that actually sometimes cash is is an attractive asset to to hold so so that's that's something that forced me to think a lot more about cash as an asset class and is cash undervalued or not you know so so um and this has led to me to kind of do some new research in this area about okay if, if everything's overvalued the everything bubble what's undervalued on the other side and so there's probably cash is probably that's the, the diego side. diego paria brings this point as well okay he, yeah he, he uses that framework as well yeah. yeah, yeah. I I actually used to work with Diego at JP Morgan about 20 years ago. So oh, <laughs> I know Diego. Um, so that's probably another one. Um, and on topics like inflation, you know, I, you know, I don't think I've learned, a, you know, a huge amount necessarily because the arguments on both sides are so well known that, you know, you just end up kind of debating timing. And we all kind of 
understand. Um, I, I would say that uh, some of the conversations I've had on the podcast about the politics of the Fed have been quite quite useful because I, I tend to underweight the politics side of the Fed. You know, I kind of view them more as technocrats, and that's through those conversations I've realized actually I need to put a bit more weight on the politics that affect the Fed. Um, someone like Powell, who's not as strong a personality, you know, from a policymaking perspective as, as a Yellen, Bernanke or Greenspan, who had very strong sort of credentials and knew kind of how the world worked. Powell is is kind of more, more of a politician in some ways. And so he's reacting to that. So that's another one. Um, and then finally, um, I've had one who uh, podcast with some Russia specialists. I have to admit, I, I wasn't an expert in Russia-Ukraine, so that, that allowed me to understand some of the dynamics of Russia and Ukraine, which I didn't quite appreciate before. So that, that was a gap in my knowledge set. That's Fantastic. Great. And so before we wrap, where can people find you? Tell us uh, all the, the, the details. Of the yeah, absolutely. Work. Yeah. So, you know, you can just go to macrohide.com. Um, you know, that's where all of my and the team's research goes there. You can just subscribe, uh, put your email in. There's a free newsletter. There's a paid option as well. On Twitter, it's macrohive. Uh, or does my Twitter handle Bilal underscore uh, yeah, Hafiz123 uh, at Bilal underscore uh, Hafiz123 that's that's my uh, Twitter handle so yeah just macrohive.com is the, the easiest place to go to alright thank, well, thank you, you. make sure everybody in. who's listening yeah like and share smash that like button share it with your friends and uh, helps us get great guests like Bilal on to chat macro for an hour and a half. We really appreciate it. Bilal. Great. Yeah, thank That's you very much. You guys. Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend all. Keep the music. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.